This is Isabella from Feminist Food Journal. As part of our war issue, I'm examining the role of women in food politics in occupied Paris during World War II. A fitting subject, since I was just in Paris a few days ago. Uh-huh. Why does everybody in Paris look so cool except me? I'll get to what I was doing in Paris in a second. But for now, you might ask, what are food politics? Put simply, food politics are the dynamics around food. Think political atmosphere, institutions, processes that impact the ways in which we produce, provision, and consume food. We call them food politics because these activities, and the identities of those who perform them, are shaped by power dynamics, and therefore inherently political. During wartime, these processes are disrupted, spurring new forms of political organization and activity. Given the historical role of women as feeders of their families, the intersection of gender and food politics is particularly interesting. In times of crisis, women, saddled with the burden of not being able to feed their families, are pushed to mobilize in new ways, often weaponizing the very thing that has been used to keep them in the home and out of the political sphere. Food. This has been a recurring theme across our war issue, which of course I recommend you read in full. Here, I'm planning to observe it from the vantage point of one particular event, a demonstration organized by women at the Eco Supermarket on the Rue de Boussy, a street in Paris's 6 arrondissement. Here's Zoe giving you a brief overview of the event. On Mother's Day, May 31st, 1942, a group of women stormed a small grocery store at the intersection of the Rue de Boussy and the Rue de Seine, the heart of a central Parisian marketplace. It was Sunday morning, the busiest shopping time of the week. When a woman emerged from the crowd urging shoppers to serve themselves, several others followed her lead, snatching cans of sardines that were stacked on display inside the shop and throwing them into the crowd. A skirmish ensued in which the grocer and his assistant intervened, grabbing several of the women who became trapped inside. As members of the crowd rushed to the aid of the women, neighborhood police responded to the melee. It was then that shots rang out over the crowd. Several police officers were hit. One died on the spot and the other would later succumb to his wounds. From the moment of assembly to the conclusion of the chase, the entire incident had lasted some 20 minutes. For the Vichy authorities, the shooting deaths qualified the incident as a crime against the state. For the German occupiers, it was an act of terrorist violence. The result was a wave of arrests, imprisonments, trials, and deaths that followed over the coming weeks and months. For the communist underground, which had organized the event to protest food shortages, the women's demonstration of the Rudabusi, as it became to be known, was a heroic act of people's justice. Within minutes of the incidents, a legend began to take shape that would survive, in various forms, in French communist memory. That's an excerpt from a book about the event called Today Sardines Are Not For Sale, a street protest in occupied Paris by Paula Schwartz, who I'll introduce to you in a second. I read the book a few months ago, 
and coincidentally, I made it to the site of the event in person on May 29th, 2022, just a few days shy of 80 years to the day since it took place. Formerly a densely populated, lived-in neighborhood, the area has changed a lot since then. Here I am at the site of the Hudubuchi protest. It is weird to imagine it all the way back then in 1942. The supermarket described in the book excerpt is now a lively bar. And of course, I had to sit down for the sake of research to enjoy an Aperol spritz before I could proceed any further. Take a picture. So why are we so interested in the Hudubusi event? It was a demonstration organized by the Communist Party to protest food shortages, and it went wrong for both the men and the women involved. Sardine cans were thrown, policemen were killed, and demonstrators were caught. And from start to finish, the event has implications for how we think about gender in wartime. From the ways that roles in the demonstration were assigned, to the ways that the police dealt with demonstrators they apprehended, and even how the event is remembered now, 80 years on. In this episode of Feminist Food Stories, I'll be taking you through a history of the event to bring these dynamics to the fore. I'd like to start off by introducing Paula Schwartz. The Lois B. Watson Professor Emerata of French and Francophone Studies at Middlebury College, and author of the book about the Rue de Bussy demonstration, called, as I mentioned earlier, Today Sardines Are Not For Sale, a street protest in occupied Paris. It was released in the summer of 2020 and provided, for the first time, a detailed recounting and analysis of the event based on public archives and oral testimony. Well, my name is Paula Schwartz. And um, I am a historian of the French resistance of, second, of the Second World War and of French studies in general, uh, with an emphasis on the 20th century. I wrote a book on this because I could. That is to say, there was an abundance of archival material. And this is extremely rare. Once I found the uh, archives from the police and the courts, I was really amazed by the level of detail that was available. And it was that detail that is so extraordinary uh, and really unique that uh, made it possible to do an in-depth study of a single event. There's a lot to dig into when it comes to the Hudibusi demonstration. Why was the Communist Party focused on food in the first place? Well, under German occupation and the Vichy regime, the French government that collaborated with Nazi Germany, Paris was starving. The Germans were redirecting the food supply to feed their war effort, and the French rationing system was crumbling. By this point in the war, only the ultra-elite were eating well. With rations dwindling for everyday Parisians, food queues became a ubiquitous sight, Long lines of people passing their days hoping to receive a food item that may or may not be in stock by the time they got to the front of the line. The frequency and intensity of the queues across Paris meant that a new queue culture began to emerge, one that was largely driven by women. So these queues were, um, they were spaces of sociability that were new, that people were stuck there with other people. Most of these people were women, 
It was a place where people forged complicities and friendships and had conversations with neighbors that they might not have spoken to before. It was also a site of seething tensions and competition and hostility and frustration. In these food lines, uh, most of the people were women uh, because for one thing, they were responsible for providing food and feeding their families. And so finding it became a full-time job. In wartime, as always, there are many competing political interests. For the Vichy regime and German occupiers, the tension simmering in the queues was an ominous warning of potential civil unrest. But for the French Communist Party, the queues were an opportunity. The Communist Party was interested in building a broad-based political movement in opposition uh, to the Vichy regime, first of all, and then the Vichy regime and the German occupiers as well. And the idea was to prepare for the ultimate liberation of Paris and of France. And to do this, the idea was to politicize people of all walks of life and to bring them under the communist umbrella. Every walk of life, there were overtures made to people in different professions, different kinds of artisans, um, students, uh, workers, of course, and women. Now, women were particularly hard to organize. If they were workers, uh, then they would be mobilized or politicized by a trade union or by their uh, co-workers, their experience of work outside the home. The food queues made up mostly of non-working women, were the perfect space for the Communist Party to make inroads with this particular group. The Communist Party was also the only political group to mobilize women around so-called women's issues during the war years. For one thing, housewives had been notoriously difficult to organize, and that's because they were isolated from each other. So uh, while they had common interests, there wasn't really a common space. Their common space was actually at the market. And during the war, they spent more and more time at the market. So that was an excellent opportunity to target uh, this population. The people who uh, participated in these demonstrations, oftentimes the leadership or the instigators were women who were already in the Communist Party orbit and their job was to bring in other people and to start something at a marketplace uh, and to uh, encourage other shoppers to join in and to uh, rise up and fight. And fight in that sense uh, in targeting housewives meant fight for food, fight for bread, fight to feed your families. Communist Party women through the underground press and leaflets, began targeting housewives to participate in their protests. This role, as an organizer and recruiter of housewives, was specific to their gender, even as they were told to fight for the liberation of France. Some women interpreted that uh, fighting language as meaning taking up arms. And when they wanted to, they were often discouraged by men in the party who said, no, you're needed over here with the organization 
of other women and housewives. In this way, women's involvement in food politics both flipped and reified traditional gender norms. The fact that many communist men were already in prison or preventively arrested by the Vichy regime meant that new spaces of resistance opened up to women. But these spaces were often tied to their pre-war domestic roles. Communist women were to troll neighborhoods appealing to women's sensibilities as mothers and housewives in order to mobilize them for political action. These gendered roles carried over into the planning of the Rue de Bussy event, which was meant to be a demonstration where women shoppers would storm the eco-grocery store, seize the cans of sardines that were to be distributed to shoppers that day, and throw them freely into the crowd, urging other women to help themselves. For organizers, the ultimate goal was to draw attention to the food shortages in Paris, while bringing angry and hungry housewives into the Communist Party in the process of doing so. It was billed as a free distribution of food, uh, and in fact had was supposed to attract people uh, and bring them into this, uh, this movement because they had something to gain from, from it. In other words, a free can of sardines. Led by Madeleine Marzin, a dedicated Communist Party member, women demonstrators were to focus on the food, while partisan men, some of them armed, were to be inconspicuously stationed throughout the crowd in order to protect the women if anything were to go wrong. As Paula puts it in her book, protesting women and partisan men thus occupied the two extremes of the gender spectrum. The feminine keeper of the hearth and protester on one end, and the masculine soldier and protector on the other. And even couples who came to the demonstration together peeled off, you know, the woman going in one direction, the man taking up position along the curb or the side streets. So this is a pretty classic division of labor on the basis of gender. But the event went wrong. It got off to an awkward start with some people failing to show up and start singing Le Marseillais as planned. When it did get going, the shopkeeper and his helpers quickly seized the women demonstrators. The partisan men designated to protect the women stepped in as planned, and at the end, two police officers were dead. News of the affair traveled up to the highest reaches of the Vichy government. More than 40 people with ties to the demonstration were rounded up by various authorities, and most were interrogated at length some of them under torture. Because it was the partisan men who had been armed, they were the ones deemed most responsible for the violence, no matter that one of them had been given a gun by a female Communist Party member. The gender-specific roles accorded to male and female demonstrators meant that sentencing was also cleaved along gender lines, with women getting lighter sentences than most of the men. Many of the men who were caught a group which devastatingly included teenagers, were sentenced to death and executed by either the Vichy regime or the German authorities. A demonstrator found to be Jewish, despite being acquitted of the crimes on Rue de Bussy, was deported to Auschwitz, not to return. Women demonstrators were sentenced mostly to hard labor, with the exception of Madeleine Malzahn, who originally received a death sentence. Her sentencing was remarkable, as no woman had been put to death in France for a very long time. This fact was not lost on government authorities, who worried about how such an angry and hungry public would perceive them being the first regime to bring back the practice. 
they commuted her sentence to prison instead. And if the punishments for the crime were gendered, based on the gendered roles assigned to the protest, so were the alibis that demonstrators used under interrogation. Women appealed to their respectability as wives and mothers to justify their presence at the demonstration, as in, oh, I was only there to try and feed my family, whereas men took more of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge approach with their interrogators. In their interrogations, uh, they told stories. And an alibi would be, I wasn't there to participate in the demonstration, or I wasn't there at all. I went to meet so-and-so, Uh, who is my mistress, but please don't say anything because my wife doesn't know about it. Above all, the demonstration alerted the authorities to the political potential of women. Madeleine Marzin eventually escaped from prison, leading to a new policy that all female prisoners had to be shackled. Previously, they had been left unrestrained, as many of them needed to carry small children. This shows how the regime's gender-specific practices quickly became gender-neutral once they realized how dangerous women could really be. The event is remembered by demonstrators and the Communist Party in gender-specific ways. The leaflets scattered around the site by the underground communist press framed it as a housewife's demonstration. And this is how the Communist Party chooses to remember it even though partisan men lost their lives in participating. Part of this parceling of memory is a decision related purely to economy. Some of the men who were involved in the demonstration, who were later executed, had also been involved in other higher profile resistance acts. Tying their memory most closely to those acts, while remembering Khudabusi as a women's demonstration, allowed the party to get two memorable events out of one group. It also has to do with obscuring the tragedy that ultimately unfolded. Erasing men and their violence, let it be remembered in a better light. It was not known that uh, there was any involvement of partisan men until much later when I saw this in the file. I was quite shocked because it had always been billed in in history books, in mostly communist uh, accounts, as the women's demonstration of the Rue de Bussy. But in fact, men were there, and the presence of men had changed everything. And yet it didn't change the memory of this demonstration as a women's demonstration. So a a sort of sanitized version without the violence uh, became the best known version of this event. So the role of men, because it was controversial and because it turned it into a tragedy, uh, was eclipsed. And the role of women was promoted in a reversal of what is uh, typical in in, uh, history and historiography. It was held up as an example of women's courage and women's uh, activism during the war. So the demonstration was used by the party to promote um, its role as a champion of women. Finally, the way that the event is remembered also has a lot to do with who was around to tell us about it. Another element of this memory and the gendering of this memory is the fact that since some of the key partisan men 
were executed. There's no question that their voices can be heard after the fact. The only oral histories I have of people that participated in this event were women, which means that it's a women's perspective uh, and women's experience that takes center stage because the memory, the voices of these men has, has already been erased. Despite the Communist Party's memorializing of the event as an inspiring act of female resistance, for the surviving demonstrators, any pride in the memory of it was deeply overshadowed by the loss of their male comrades. In 1992, Paula traveled to Paris to visit the Rue de Bussy site on the 50th anniversary of its occurrence, along with Madeleine Malzin and another surviving demonstrator, Mathieu Huet. She found that the mood was more somber than she had originally anticipated. Madeleine Marzin had an amazing memory. She remembered all the details. And for them, this event was not a triumph. It was a horrific tragedy. Mathieu whom I interviewed on various occasions, she could barely talk about this without tears in her eyes. So for them, uh, they were proud to have participated, but they also saw it as a disaster. And they had personal relationships with some of the people who had been arrested and killed. And I was in a kind of celebratory mood. And that immediately changed when I saw the looks on their faces. And uh, for them, this was not uh, a celebration. It was a commemoration, as it should have been. So what can we take away from thinking about the demonstration now? When Zoe and I planned this war issue late last year, we had no idea that we would be experiencing a war so close to home while we brought it to fruition. The crisis in Ukraine added a new sense of urgency to our work and an imperative to shed light on the nuances of gender, food, memory, and storytelling that tend to get lost in the fog of war. When I started Paula's book in early March, during those first few disorienting, terrifying days after the conflict had broken out, I was struck by the vivid portrait she painted of resilience and resistance. Paris was being starved, but people found their way. They made their way as best as they could. But still, some of it was hard to read. I ached for the families of the high school boys and men who were executed. And as a Jewish woman, the idea that some of the participants were deported to concentration camps and didn't return makes my blood run cold, no matter how many times I hear stories like this. One thing I've taken from this work in general, including work on survivors of concentration camps, is that within each human being, there is a capacity for evil and a capacity for good. And we all, we never know what, how we would react in a given situation. The book hit even harder with the news emerging of war crimes in Ukraine and the realization that by blockading Ukraine's ports, Russia is now using food as a weapon against the entire world. I asked Paula how she felt watching the war unfold in Ukraine after spending so much of her career dedicated to studying it. I have to say that I find it extremely dispiriting to see a reenactment of what I had hoped was history. 
She also noted some of the same dynamics playing out all over again. People left behind are, uh, for the most part, women and children because men were called up, right? So um, again, the, the same sort of gender divide is playing out as one might expect. Despite the sadness that surrounds memories of the demonstration, there were also bright spots. Paula's retelling of the men who used visiting mistresses as alibis to get out of trouble made me chuckle despite myself. So did a reference she found to how, for French people and their rich food culture, the indignity of being starved by Germans, who were not exactly renowned for their cuisine, was what convinced them that in the end, the Allies would win the war. As someone who spent five years living in Berlin and choking down what is possibly the world's hardest bread, that resonated a little too deeply. I've also enjoyed thinking about the idea that war, despite all of its hardships, has historically opened doors that were closed to women, even if only out of necessity. This necessity, in a way, allowed women to have men's experiences of war, for better or for worse, as Madeleine Marzin's original death sentence demonstrates. The potential for women to get involved in food politics in France diminished when food became freely available, at least until women in France finally got the right to vote, two years after the Rue de Bussy event. But when doing research on food politics and gender for this podcast, I found that neighborhood organizations mobilizing women around food in Britain during World War I became important structures for their continued political participation. I also came across moving testimony gathered by Eleanor Boyle, a journalist and food systems writer from British war survivors in Canada talking about their memories of food from that time. One of her interviewees, Louise Martin, tells of being enthralled by stories shared by members of the British Women's Land Army, known as the Land Girls, who were mostly young women sent from cities to fill labor shortages in rural farming regions. For women whose lives had been largely sheltered up until then, suddenly they were studying mechanics, driving tractors, and working alongside prisoners of war from Germany and Italy recounting that the latter group introduced them to fresh, rather than tinned, spaghetti for the very first time. As Louise remembers, these were liberating experiences for many women. They surely shaped women's views on their role in society following the end of the war. And finally, it's uplifting to think that 80 years onwards, Food in France is still bringing people together. If I do get to Paris this summer, I'll uh, get in touch with you, just in case you're hanging around there. That would be brilliant. I would love that. It'd be very exciting. Yes, we could we could meet at that um, bistro that I mentioned that's on the corner of the Rue de Bussy. This has been Isabella from Feminist Food Journal, bringing you a feminist food story as part of our war issue. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did reporting on it and hope that you'll tune in again soon. This podcast barely scratches the surface of what the Hudabusi demonstration can teach us about the wider dynamics of war, gender, household labor, politics, and justice in Paris at the time. I really encourage you to read Paula's book in full if you'd like to learn more. You can find a link to it on Feminist Food Journal Substack in our show notes, where I've also added some additional resources and information. 
Finally, after listening to a first cut of this podcast, Paula told me that the bar where I had my Aperol spritz was not the site of the original food demonstration. It was actually the Paul Boulangerie chain across the street. I'll blame this on my historic inability to read maps and burning subconscious desire to sit down and have an Aperol.